Good evening. It is great to be here. I do not believe I've been in Michigan for 50 years. I think the last time I left Michigan was in the summer of 69. My dad finished his um, master's degree in organ, keyboard at Andrews, and we headed back to the West Coast, which is where my mother was from, and didn't like living anywhere else. She despised Michigan. She said the mosquitoes were the size of jet planes. Um, But face it, my mother didn't like anything east of Washington State, so uh, you guys didn't have a chance back here. I was born in Saginaw General Hospital. 1955 was a good year. Disneyland opened in May, and I opened in November. I tried to die a couple of times before we left Michigan when I was two and a half. I managed to navigate at 15 months from the street-level entrance foyer of the Lansing Civic Center, 16 feet down to the, to the uh, convention level, all by myself. And um, there's an old Pastor Rasmussen, who I knew when I was in Northern California pastoring at camp meeting, he'd play his his uh, harmonica along with our band in the young adult tent and uh, he tried to catch me when I fell and he missed and I crunched on the floor and I was um, done for until about four hours later all of a sudden I sat up and I was fine and I wasn't even bruised so I'm a I was the miracle boy of Michigan for a long time when my dad was here and then I inhaled some walnuts, and a Dr. Slade, and does that name sound familiar to anybody? A Dr. Slade washed my lungs out with sterile water back at Saginaw General again, I think. So uh, Saginaw, I didn't realize it until I got to thinking about this. I think my dad was pastoring in Bay City, and he always had three churches, so I don't know what his other churches were. I don't know if he was ever at this church. It would have been the, about 1953, 4 or if I remember hearing the names West Branch and Standish and others, so I don't know where Dad was. In fact, I've been toying with going down the conference office and seeing if they could dig up the records. That would be interesting to know just where. He was at 12 places in nine years. So they moved him around a lot back then. Anyway, my dad was Leonard Venden. And if any of you are acquainted with a Venden, it's probably the name Morris Venden that would be the most familiar Morris passed away, I believe, in 2013, maybe 2012. My dad passed away in 1990, and Morris and my dad were first cousins. Um, my dad's an only child, and um, but the generation before him had a whole bunch of kids. So uh, I'm the, I, I, I say that I'm from the unfamous Venden line. Uh, Morris was the famous one. He said he hated being famous, but he had a message that changed my life and the lives of many in my generation and my parents' generation. And so Lee is Maury's son. Lee is, has been a pastor for many years and for the last 25 or 30 in the Upper Columbia Conference area, Eastern Washington State. And about 12 years ago, the conference president called him up and he said, I think we need to have 
a revival series in our churches for our members. Would you be willing to do that? And Lee had been motivated that direction for some time. This seemed to be an answer to prayer. So for the last dozen years, Lee has been giving this seminar called All About Jesus, um, all over the world, in fact. And uh, he came to my church in Glendale, Arizona. That's Northwest Phoenix. And uh, gave this series in January or February of 2017. And when he got done, I didn't have enough of my people come. So I said, I'm starting next Sabbath. I'm going to preach it again. So I worked through it and preached it on Sabbath for the next, all through the summer and into the fall. And he's listening online. And he said, I like what you do. Would you uh, be willing to help me out? And I said, I thought, I mean, that was a compliment. I, my cousin is a great preacher. And so... Uh, I said, the only thing you can do is if people call up and, you know, because Lee said, I'm booked five years in advance. If people call up and I say, well, you know, I can come in 2021 or 2022. And, but if, if you're interested, uh, my cousin could come sooner. And I said, well, if anybody bites on that, that's fine. We'll do it. And so I'm the backup hitter. And that's fine with me. I, I love my church in Glendale. I must. I've been there 22 years. And I have no desire to cease pastoring that church. So, But it's a lot of fun to get out four times a year and come and visit new people. And so it's kind of added a new dimension to our ministry in the last couple of years. Marilyn and I have had a very strange ministerial career. We interned in Southern California for a year and a half. We moved into an RV and did on-the-road evangelism for nine years. And then I pastored a little church just north of the Golden Gate Bridge for six and a half years. And I've been at Glendale the last 22. So most Adventist pastors have been in 12 churches by now. But uh, we did 50 plus in evangelism and we're catching up now with the All About Jesus seminar. Anyway, so I'm looking forward this week to uh, taking a drive down to Nylon Street. I know the address where I was brought home from the hospital to as a baby just off the 675 loop. As we were driving in yesterday, I saw this sign, 375,000 and something babies born, and then I couldn't read the rest of the sign. I wondered, am I one of those? Because was that an advertisement for, for Saginaw, you know, general or whatever? I did live for two years in Holly, where my dad taught music when I was in fifth and sixth grade. And uh, so I left Michigan when I was two and a half, came back when I was in fifth grade through seventh grade and haven't been back since. Went to summer camp once at Camp Asable. I hated it because I didn't have my swimming on her. They wouldn't let me go in the water above my knees. Nobody bothered to find out if I could swim. But um, anyway, I'm still trying to get over that. That's right. Anyway, that's more than I usually say about me, but this kind of feels fun to be near where once was home, even though I can't remember it. All right. By the way, Lee um, is starting this series tonight on the Oregon coast. And David, is it your son that's going to be there? Okay, so his son is going to Lee's opening, and which will be in a couple of hours, given West Coast time. Uh, Lee and I are very different preachers. Lee is more of a storyteller. I tend to be more into the theology. But we do the same topics in the same order 
but in our own armor. So uh, let's see what happens here. We will be doing 13 presentations between now and a week from tomorrow afternoon. Every evening, Sunday through Friday, will be at 7 o'clock. There will be snacks at 6.30 if you don't have time to get home and get something to eat. And then tomorrow and the following Sabbath, we will have three sessions. So Sabbaths are very heavy. We'll be doing a, a, a presentation at 10.30 for Sabbath school time. So if you're used to skipping Sabbath school, don't skip Sabbath school. If you're used to coming late to Sabbath school, don't come late. We'll do a second presentation at 11.45 for church, and then we'll have a potluck lunch, and we'll have a 2.30 afternoon. We'll be done about 4. So it's a big day, and it's the same thing the following Sabbath, but that's how we get in 13 presentations. The topics are sequential. Everyone builds on the one before, so try not to miss any. If you do miss one, don't stay away, come back. You'll have missed important stuff, but you won't be lost. Um, I mean that in both contexts. And uh, they'll be making CDs. You can play catch-up if you want to pick it up the next night and catch up on what you missed. There is no bait and switch. This entire series will be all about Jesus. And, uh, you know, one of the things that pastors get criticized for is what we don't say in a given sermon. I had some gentlemen go out the door one Sabbath and I preached for 50 minutes. And they got after me for what I didn't say. Well, how long did you want me to preach? The point being, I'm sure that after one or two or three presentations, you're going to be saying, yeah, but, yeah, but, but what about? I guarantee we'll get there, okay? So if you will hang in through the whole series, I believe you will hear a well-balanced set of presentations that covers everything from getting to know Jesus to where sanctification and obedience come in. Okay, so we're going to cover a broad spectrum, one bite at a time. I want to thank you for being here, and I ask you to bow your heads with me for prayer. Jesus, as we open tonight, would you let your spirit come into this room, into each of our hearts? Would you make sure that what is said is what you want said, and what is heard is what you want heard? And may you bring revival and reformation to our hearts as we meet together we pray in your name amen you will see this slide every night on the screen Uh, a revival of true godliness among us is the greatest and most urgent of all our needs to seek this should be our first work we are here seeking revival this is a series that is designed for anybody but it's aimed specifically at you church members If we're not growing, we're dying. And revival is a little bit like love. You need to fall in love again every day, even though you didn't fall out of love yesterday. Isn't that right? And love can be sweeter tomorrow, even though it wasn't sour yesterday. And we need to be revived daily. Just because we're seeking revival doesn't mean we're lost or reprobate or not walking with Jesus. It's like a marriage. The best of marriages are the ones that get worked on every day. And we need to work on our walk with Jesus and our experience with him. So I always pray when we start these series that God will do a great work in this church and take me along for the ride. And I pray that God will do a great work in my life and take you along for the ride. 
We have a very simple nightly program, very few preliminaries. Marilyn will sing a song or two, and we'll get right into the message. Try not to be late so you don't miss anything. Let us begin this evening in John chapter 21. Now, I will put most of the verses on the screen so that we can move quickly. I invite you to use your Bibles via book or phone, however you would like. Um, But we're going to start in John chapter 21. There we have the story of Jesus after the resurrection. You know, he kind of did the now you see him, now you don't see him thing. He was here and then he was gone and he'd show up. And one night, the disciples, seven of them, and we know that at least four of the disciples were professional fishermen, so they had all the gear. The disciples evidently hadn't seen Jesus in a while and wanted something to do. Maybe they needed some extra money. Who knows? But they said, let's go fishing. And they fished all night and caught nothing. And in the morning, through the mist, there was a figure on shore. And what do you always ask fishermen when you see them? Did you catch anything? Which is exactly what the man on shore asked. And they said, nothing, not a thing. We fished all night and didn't catch a thing. I had a grandma who lived out on the Cowieman River east of uh, Kelso Longview, Washington, where my dad grew up. And... uh, She'd go out on the river and there'd be a fishing hole and people had been there all day and not caught a thing. She'd walk up, catch her limit and go home. Did you catch anything? Well, these are professionals. They caught nothing. And the man on shore through the mist says, well, throw the net on the other side. Now that should have had some familiar ring from three years earlier. And it says they did. And somebody was like me. They counted the fish. 153. And Peter said, it's the Lord. And he dove in the water and swam to shore. And they hauled the boat and the fish ashore. And it was Jesus. He said, bring some more fish. He already had some on the grill. Don't know where he got those. And after breakfast, all these hungry men in breakfast, Jesus, when they had eaten breakfast, he said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of Jonah, Do you love me more than these? Peter said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said, Feed my lambs. Jesus said again a second time, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me? And he said, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And Jesus said, Tend my sheep. And then a third time, and by the way, we don't know how long was between these. We don't know if these were machine gun Or if he said it and they had some more conversation, ate some more fish, and then he asked again. We don't know how compressed or spread out this was, but Jesus says a third time, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me? And Peter was grieved because he said the third time, do you love me? And he said, Lord, you know all things, you know that I love you. And Jesus said, feed my sheep. Now, some amazing things happen in this story. First of all, I believe Jesus asked every one of these questions for Peter's sake because he let Peter openly, to his face, undo each of his three denials. I think that was psychologically important for Peter. Secondly, by asking and getting Peter's response and then what he said afterwards, feed my sheep, feed my lambs, Jesus was reinstating Peter into the ranks of the disciples. Because you know the rest of them were saying, yeah, He's a washout. I believe that he was assuring the disciples of his confidence in Peter. In front of the disciples, Jesus was saying, Peter is still my man. 
And he was even reinstating Peter into leadership. This is just huge. But there's another dimension of the story that I want to talk about tonight, more relational than theology, more about Jesus than about Peter. It kind of goes counter to my own intellectually oriented approach to Scripture. But have you ever asked someone that question that Jesus asked three times? Have you ever asked someone, do you love me? That's a scary question, isn't it? What if they don't give the answer that you want them to? Remember third grade? You asked your friend to ask her friend to ask her if she liked you. Because you couldn't handle the possibility of a face-to-face no. And I've heard the story of the wife who asked her husband on their 50th anniversary... Do you love me? And the husband says, I told you I loved you 50 years ago. My word is good. I haven't changed my mind. Why do I have to say it again? I finally told my wife I loved her the second time on our 40th anniversary. No, I didn't. I had done it many other times. We had number 40 this last March. We theologize scripture as God seeking to save the lost, and we're all the lost, and we need God, and we need forgiveness, we need his provision, we need his direction, we need his life, and as preachers, we try to appeal to sinful and lost hearts that you all need God. And we try to get people to accept Jesus. But there's another side to that question, because Jesus asks, do you love me? Now, generally, when you ask, do you love me, you're not asking whether the person needs you. You're asking, do you you want me? Do you desire me? Do you desire a relationship with me? And I want you to think about Jesus asking that question. He He asks it to all of us, I believe. Because he is love. And love, well, let's look at this verse. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is literally out of God. And everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. No one can truly love if you haven't been born of God. Whatever's out there called love isn't quite the real thing or the fullness of it. He who does not love God does not know God. Or he he who does not love does not know God, for God is love. I want you to notice, God is love. He doesn't have love. He isn't loving. He is love. He's love to the core. You ring God out, and love comes out. And if God is love, I think one of the most abominable doctrines that's ever been taught as a Christian doctrine in the Middle Ages was called the immutability of God. Now, it's built on the idea that God is complete. Is God complete? Yep, God is whole. God is fullness. You can't add anything to God. You can't take anything away from God. And if you do a strict logical consideration of God being total and whole, then God is an immovable rock. And it's hard to hug a rock. But God is not just whole, total, complete. God is love. And love isn't a thing on a shelf that you have a can of love up there and you open it up and have a little for dinner. Let's have a little love tonight. 
Love only exists as an interactive relationship between multiple entities. Isn't that right? So if God is love, now this is one of the medieval doctrines that did make sense, one of the arguments that God has to be multiple because he's love. Because you can't have love with one. That's frustration. But because God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, love flows, so God is love. But I would like to suggest if God is love, the more fully you are love, not only do you give love, but you desire love. And if God is infinite love, then God has an infinite desire to be loved and an infinite capacity not just to love, but to be loved. And I believe that if God is love, we can break his heart. He is movable. He's not immutable. He's not static. He may be whole and complete, and I may not be able to add to him or take away, but I can love him. And there's a response. I know that's, you know, that's like God is three and God is one. God is total, and yet God is able to be affected by my affection towards him. But when you deal with the infinite, if you make it make sense within the finite, you've limited it to the finite. Isn't that right? So he is sovereign, he is total, he is whole, but he's also love. And we're made in his image. And if the core of his image is love and we're made in his image, then I believe we can extrapolate from our own desire and need for love back to his heart. Does that make sense? So let's talk a little bit about how God made us. God said, let us make Adam. That's the literal word in the Hebrew there. Let us make Adam in our image according to our likeness. We are made in the image of God. And what is the very core of who God is? God is love. So we are made in the image of love. Why did God make human beings? Did he need servants? Did he need gardeners? Workers? Staff for the plantation earth? Or was he seeking lovers? Children to expand the circle of love. And as I suggested already, love touches the infinite. You can be more in love tomorrow without having been less in love yesterday. And throughout the ceaseless ages of eternity, we can be deeper and deeper in love. And we're never going to hit the blue screen. Memory is full. You know, you've maxed out on love. You've reached the destination. No, because love is always the journey. There's always a tomorrow that can be even better than today, even though yesterday wasn't worse. I like to say love can be complete today, completer tomorrow, (laughs) without having been less complete yesterday. We're made in the image of God, and I believe love is how we actually somehow tap in to the infinity of God while being finite human beings. Now, after God made Adam in his image... 2 verse 18 of Genesis, the Lord God said it's not good that the Adam, literally, should be alone. By the way, Adam is not just the name of the guy. Adam is our species name. We're the Adam race because God made Adam from the dust of the Adama, which means red dirt. So we're the red dirt people. 
Some of us are a little overdone. Some of us aren't quite done enough. Some are right in the middle, I say to my Hispanic folks in my church. We're made in the image of God and we're made from the red dirt. We are the Adam race. And it's interesting, in much of Genesis 1 and 2, it puts the definite article in front of the word Adam, the Adam, meaning the human. It's not good that the Adam should be alone. Now let me ask you something. It was not good, but was it bad? This is before sin when God looked and everything was good and very good. So even though it wasn't good, it wasn't bad. But God said, I'm going to make something even better. I'm going to make Adam a helper comparable to him. And Azer Kenegdo. Azer means a helper. All its other uses in the Old Testament deals with God coming through as a life-saving helper. And Kenegdo means the same opposite. I'm going to make him a same opposite. Now, Adam didn't know quite what that was. So uh, out of the ground, the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the air and brought them to the Adam to see what he would call them. And whatever the Adam called each living creature, that was its name. So Adam gave names to all cattle, to the birds of the air, to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper comparable to him. Now, I think God was pulling a trick on Adam. I think because human love goes far beyond the instinctual like it does with animals. It goes into the cognitive and, and to the heart. God let Adam feel the need to be loved. Because he saw it. Everybody had a partner but him. And then God put the Adam to sleep, caused the deep sleep to fall on him, and he took one of his ribs, closed up the flesh in its place, and from the rib the Lord God had taken from the Adam, he made into a woman, and he brought her to the Adam. I like to say that, um, well, first of all, the word rib, nowhere else in Scripture is it used for an anatomical body part. It's always used for a side. One side of the ark, the other side of the ark. One side of the tabernacle, the other side. One side of the mountain, the other side of the mountain. So I don't believe he took a rib. I think he took a side. Adam woke up. He wasn't half the man he used to be. And then he looked and he saw the other half coming back and he started to write poetry. He said, now, the Adam said, this is bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother, be joined to his woman, literally, and they shall become one flesh. And they were both naked, the Adam and his woman, and were not ashamed. You know, when you read this story, This is a romance. Two naked, beautiful people in paradise. I mean, how many movies have had that as their theme? And God is a lover. And he creates in love. And he desires to be loved. And he loves it when he sees us loving each other. And he wants to be right in the middle of it. Creation is a romance story. And God is the ultimate romantic. And he comes along and he says, do you love me? That's why he made us, is to love him and be loved. And life, that that is just about enough, isn't it? To be loved by another. Life is almost complete right there. And to not have that life is never quite complete. 
Of course, something tragic happened. The serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, as God indeed said, you shall not eat of every tree of the garden. I don't know if any of you remember Leslie Harding. He was a old British scholar. Learned a lot from that man early on in my time. And he said he thought the best translation for yay has God said, if you read the old King James, that word yay or indeed, he thought the best translation would be huh. I mean, you know, you go and you buy a new car and you bring it over to your best friend. You're going to show off your new car and he looks at it and he goes, huh. What are you thinking? Did I get a lemon? Does he know something I don't know? Just kind of that grunt of disapproval, huh? Has God said, you can't eat of every tree of the garden? The woman says, no, 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 no. We can eat of all the trees of the garden except the one you're in. If we eat of it or touch it, we'll die. And the serpent said to the woman, you won't really die. God knows that the day that you eat it, your eyes will be open and you'll, you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. The serpent comes along and says, so you think God has your best future in mind? Huh. He's holding something back from you. If you'll just eat this fruit and come with me, we can break out of this place and find real life. What was the original sin? Let's read about it. The woman saw the tree was good for food and pleasant to the eyes and desirable to make one wise. And she took of its fruit and ate and gave it to her man, literally, her man with her. And he ate and their eyes were opened and they knew they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together. I have a fig tree. Have you ever broken a fig leaf off? It oozes with white sticky stuff. That must have been a mess. If you think about Adam and Eve trying to cover up with fig leaves. But I want you to notice, the tree was good for food. God didn't make a stinky tree. He didn't make rotten, ugly, smelly fruit. It was good fruit. Nothing wrong with the fruit. Was there anything wrong with eating? I hope not. We all love to eat. So then what was the sin at the tree? Eating isn't a sin. The fruit wasn't bad. It wasn't a hamburger tree that will give you hardening of the arteries. What was wrong? And we have a standard answer. They didn't obey. Oh, so God's one that sets up rules to test you and see if you're going to toe the line and do what he says. I don't think that quite fits with love. What happened at the tree is very simple. Adam and Eve broke up with God and ran off with somebody else. The original sin actually wasn't bad behavior. It was breaking relationship that has led to horrendous behavior. Now that point is going to be key to everything we have to say from now on in our week together. The original sin was not bad behavior. So if the sin wasn't bad behavior, then the solution can't be good behavior. But if the original sin was breaking up with God and running off with another lover, then what's the solution? Break up with another lover and run back to relationship with God. 
And if breaking up with God led to horrendous behavior, what will getting back together with God lead to? Restored behavior. Behavior is not incidental. But behavior is not the answer. Behavior is the byproduct of the true answer. Have you ever experienced the pain of breakup? I'm sure we all have. Do you remember your first love? That'll take you back to some interesting memories. You know, up till about sixth grade or so, to us guys, girls are ooh, and they have cooties. And when the teacher says, let's all join hands in a circle to play a game, we sure hope a girl isn't standing by us. And if she is, we give one finger. And as soon as the teacher says, okay, you can let go, you know, we're trying to get the cooties off. Somewhere between sixth grade and eighth grade, something happens. You know, the idea of holding hands with a girl takes on a different color, goes from black and white to living color. Do you remember the first time holding hands? How did you get there? You know, you're sitting in an evangelistic meeting, maybe. We love to go to evangelistic meetings if a certain person was there, right? Just fascinated with that preacher. You know, because often the lights were dim. My cousin Lee said that he discovered the mother's room. Nobody was in there. It was the perfect place to sit during the evangelistic meeting with his girlfriend. But you know, you're sitting by each other and you kind of really want to touch somehow. And so you put your hand on your, your one knee, you know, and you let it slide to the right. And she puts her hand on her left knee and lets it slide over. And somehow your hands touch. And instead of going, ooh, something happens. The next thing you know, you're holding hands, right? And life surges through your body. Remember that? Wow, I got to have more of this. This is life. Amazing, amazing. Do you remember your first kiss? I was in eighth grade. That may have been too young. My dad would have thought so. And it was Sheila. And we were watching a big 19-inch television that was on one of those chair-level TV stands right beside the dining room table, so you almost had to sit on the floor under the table to watch the TV. And I think, I know it was uh, the movie Exodus, and I think it was a Zest commercial. And somehow, under the table, lips met, and there was this explosion of life. Wow, never experienced anything like that before. Got to have more of this. And that was about three weeks before the end of my eighth grade year. And I was leaving town forever. And as we drove away, Bobby Vinton was singing, though we got to say goodbye for the summer, baby, I promise you this, I'll send you all my love every day in a letter sealed with a kiss. And you know, the violins come in and the backup vocals modulate up. Don't want to say goodbye for the summer. Knowing the love we'll miss, but let us pledge to meet in September, seal it with a kiss. Well, I knew I wasn't coming back in September. And the amazement of that kiss was an exact opposite now. You know, I felt terrible. I couldn't tell my mother. I was only 14. You know, she'd laugh at me. There are more fish in the sea. You're just a kid. But it still hurt. Do you remember that? 
my freshman year, I was at Auburn Academy, and I met Susie. Now, at the Academy back then, 1970, 71, they had the hands-off policy. Anybody remember that? Now, what does the hands-off policy mean? No touching, no holding hands, no hugging, and certainly no kissing, which meant that's what we all tried to do. And it wasn't but a couple weeks into knowing Susie and I got a chance to kiss her. And somehow the rules didn't stop me. And she had chap lips and I never dated her again. And if I ever meet Susie again, I'm going to apologize up and down for being a so-and-so. And I think every one of the breakups over the rest of my high school and college years was God punishing me for that. Anyway, I tell these stories just to kind of tweak your thinking. Do you remember your first love, first holding hands, first kiss? The life that surged. Do you remember the first breakup, the life that drained? Would the sun ever shine again? Guys, do you ever remember your girlfriend snuggling close one evening and holding your arm and saying in a sweet voice, I think we should just be friends. Which meant, I'm moving on, get lost, we're through, leave me alone, don't call, don't write, don't hang out, don't come up to me when I'm near my friends. And you remember watching from a distance while she's having fun with new people and you're feeling just awful. And what did we try to do when they broke up with us? I remember my sophomore year was Pam. I was living in Albuquerque at the time. I went to a lot of schools. Got in 12 schools by the time I finished high school. But uh, we're down in Albuquerque at Sandy View Academy and Pam from West Texas, and she had an incredible drawl. She decided she'd had enough of me, I guess, and we broke up. She broke up with me. And what did I try to do? I tried to find a chance to talk to her. So I finally got a moment when I was able to kind of corner her and talk to her, and she heard about two sentences and walked away sent a friend to say, don't ever speak to me again. And I was heartbroken. What did God try to do when we broke up with him? They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the Adam and his woman hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. They didn't want to talk. And the Lord God called to the Adam and said to him, where are you? He said, I heard your voice in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. And God said, who told you you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded that you should not eat? Notice God doesn't come with fire. He comes with desire. We broke up with him. We ran off with some so-and-so that we didn't even know when he'd given us everything. And he doesn't come to beat on us. He comes for conversation. And we are hiding. Then the Adam said, well, the woman that you gave me, the one I was just writing poetry about a few days ago, it's her fault. So God turned to the woman and said, what have you done? And she said, not my fault. It's that gorgeous serpent. Remember it said the serpent was more cunning. That word cunning doesn't mean devious in the Hebrew. It means gorgeous and intelligent. 
If you wanted a pet in the Garden of Eden, of all the animals God made, you would have wanted a serpent. They were the most intelligent, beautiful creatures. Now, they're not anymore. And there's a reason. Because God turned to the serpent and said, from now on, you're going to crawl. We don't know how they got around before that, but it evidently wasn't crawling. Every ancient mythological system has winged serpents in it. Is that an ancient memory? I don't know. And then God declares war. He says, I'm going to keep the war going, keep the enmity between you and the woman, serpent and the woman. And generations down the line, your seed and her seed, there's going to be another battle. And I'm going to do you in and win it all back for them. Notice God doesn't come with punishment. He doesn't come with anger. He doesn't come to curse. He never curses the man or the woman. He curses the serpent and the earth, but not the man and the woman. He comes with desire to talk it out. I wonder what might have happened if instead of blaming each other, they actually would have said, God, forgive us. What can we do from here? We're back. But they ran off with another lover. Now let me ask you one quick question. Why does sin inevitably result in death? Because you broke up with the one who is life and ran off with one that can't give you life. Isn't that right? So eventually, if you're, you know, you've gone from the, the plug in the wall to an energizer. And you're going to go and go and go until you go out. And the only hope is to plug back into the one who's eternal life. Right? You see, God doesn't have to kill sinners. Sin will take us out. And it's not because he's punishing. It's because we have disconnected from the one who is life. God is a romantic. He comes with desire to restore the relationship that's been broken. He did give a couple of words here to the woman. He said, I'll greatly multiply your sorrow and conception and pain. You'll bring forth children. Your desire will be for your man and he will rule over you. God here predicts something. Because of the new lover you have chosen, because you've broken up with me and run off with another, your life, ladies, is going to be full of trouble with men and children. Was God pretty accurate there? I think so. I think so. Then he turned to the Adam and said, because you've heeded the voice of your woman eating the tree, cursed is the ground for your sake. You are going to wear yourself out trying to feed and care for the family until you return to the ground. Has God been pretty accurate? I don't believe in a minute this is God saying, now this is my will, this is what I want. This is God saying, here are the consequences, the inevitable, natural, innate consequences to the choice to run off with a lover who is not life. This is all about a romance. It's more about love and romance than about law and behavior. Philip Yancey, a very prolific Christian author, a number of years ago, a number of decades ago, he wrote a book called Disappointment with God. He said he went up into the Colorado Rockies and borrowed a friend's cabin, and it just he, he had two weeks alone in a cabin. And he said while he was there, there was a blizzard. He couldn't have gotten out if he wanted to. But his goal for being two weeks alone in a cabin in the mountains was he wanted to read the Bible through from cover to cover, completely uninterrupted. 
He said it was because he wanted to kind of take a flying trip over the top of it and see what the major points were. I remember back when I was in eighth grade, we lived in Auburn, Washington, and my dad took a job the last second semester over in Pasco Kennewick on the east side of the mountains. And so all winter, dad was crossing the, the uh, Cascade Mountains. And dad was a pilot, and a couple of times he uh, rented a friend's plane, a Piper Comanche. And one time I flew over the Cascades in winter with him. It's a rare day you can do that, and it's sunny, but it was a perfectly clear day. And if you fly over the Cascades in winter, down below it looks like a white pincushion. You know, the, the mountains are just incredible. But then what do you have sticking up above all the mountains? You know, you've got, you've got Baker and Rainier and Mount Helens before she blew and Adams and all the way down to uh, Mount Hood. And you can see it all. You have this incredible scape of mountains, but these mountains stick up. And Yancey wanted to know what would stick up above all the others. And using my own words to describe what I believe he said in the book, he finally came to the fact that the Bible boils down to one effort after another of God seeking to restore a relationship with humankind. God looking for friends, chasing after us, trying to be close, revealing himself with one simple question, do you love me? Can we be friends? God makes a beautiful place, beautiful people to love and enjoy. He's anticipating a beautiful relationship. And on the honeymoon, we break up with him and run off with a stranger. And we tell God, leave me alone. We found someone else. Let's just be friends. And that's what sin is, breaking off relationship with God. And when you break off relationship with a life source... You're breaking off life. Therefore, the wages of sin is death. Please notice, the Bible does not say the punishment of God against sin or sinners is death. It says the wages of sin is death. We ran off with someone who can't give us life. God knows the pain of breakup more than anyone else in the universe. He has a lover's heart. He's a source of love. He is infinite love. He has an infinite longing for friends and he always wants to, like any lovers, enlarge the circle of love. And for 6,000 years, the majority of us on earth have been yelling at God, don't write, don't call, don't hang out, don't show up, leave me alone, let's just be friends. Can you remember what rejection feels like? You applied for a job and didn't get it, they gave it to somebody else. They cut back and cut you loose. Your fiancé breaks the engagement, or your spouse says... I don't want to be your spouse anymore. I have an associate at my church. He's the same height as David. He's 6'8", but he's 350. He's black, and he's my brother. We are best of friends. And Eddie has been teaching. He, he came back to the Lord about 10 years ago. I had the privilege of being part of that. He's been teaching at our school, 7th and 8th grade, for several years. And the conference agreed because they saw his work to bring him on as my associate. A month after we knew he'd be my associate, starting about three months later, his wife said, I don't want to be your wife anymore. I don't want to be a pastor's wife. And broke his heart. Absolutely broke his heart. My friend Eddie knows more than I do what it feels like to be rejected. 
You're in grade school. They're choosing teams. You're the last one chosen. You're against the fence. Well, all right, we'll lose, but we'll take Vendon, you know. You're not invited to a party, but all your friends were. You want to go to the banquet or prom, so you ask her. She says no. You go by yourself. She's with someone else. You audition for the music group or the part in the play. You get passed over, undesired, unincluded. God knows that pain better than anyone else in the universe. Peter denied even knowing Jesus three times. And after the resurrection on the shore of Galilee, after some breakfast, Jesus asked three times, Do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? And when someone asks that, they're putting their heart out on a platter. It's a very risky question. Because of the nature of love, people can choose to love or choose not to love. If you can't choose not to love, you're programmed and it's not love. So when you ask that question, you may not get the answer you're looking for. Jesus says to Peter, do you love me? The creator God of the universe is asking if we care about him. Jesus who died the bloody death that we might live is asking if we love him. God putting himself out to be affected by our response. You can look at Jesus in the triumphal entry. As he drew near, he saw the city, and what did he do? He wept over it. Now you're in the crowd, and you've laid your coat there down down to make a carpeted path, the red carpet for the new Messiah, and he's riding on this donkey, which is prophetic, and all of this works, you know? We're at the end of Daniel's 70 weeks. It's time for the Messiah to be here. This is it. And what do you expect that Messiah to do as he crests the hill and can finally look down from the Mount of Olives and see the temple down there in the gorgeous uh, city? You expect him to raise his hand and say, let's take it! And they look over and he's sobbing. I don't think it was just wiping a few tears. I saw a man in the airport yesterday in a restaurant while we were waiting for the plane and he was sitting there sobbing. And his friend was trying to console him, so I didn't have to go do that. But I felt terrible. Marilyn said, I feel so bad for that guy. He was a big, burly guy with a big beard and had his hands over his face, and he was just sobbing. And they look up, and Jesus, I don't think it was just some little tears. He was sobbing. His body is shaking with sobs. And he cries out, and you know how people sound when they're sobbing. If you had known, even you, especially in this your day, the things that make for your peace, but now they're hidden from your eyes. If you only understood. Have have you ever said that to a teenager who is running off with who? You can't believe their choice for a life partner. And you can see it's going to be disaster. And you're saying, if only you knew what would work for your peace. But it's hidden from your eyes. You can't see. The days will come when your enemies will build an embankment around you, surround you, and close you in on every side and level you and your children within you to the ground. And they will not leave in you one stone upon another because you did not know the time of your visitation. Your lover showed up and you have turned him away. And things are not going to go well with that other lover. And just a few days later, as Jesus left the temple for the last time, Appears to be the Tuesday evening before the crucifixion. So just two days after the triumphal entry, 
Jesus said, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. In the Greek, the second line there, the last word, I wanted to gather you. But the, la- the fourth line, you did not want it. It's the same word. I wanted you, but you didn't want me. See, your house is left desolate. He's not cursing them. I'm going to make you pay for this. You followed a lover that can't give you life. You followed one that's going to use you and abuse you and leave you desolate. And I can't do anything about it because love has to give freedom. I say you will see me no more until you say blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Jesus says we can't get back together until you're willing to want it. William Barclay in his commentary on Luke says that there was no room in the inn was symbolic for what was to happen to Jesus. The only place where there was room for him was on a cross. He sought an entry to the overcrowded hearts of men. He could not find it, and still his search and his rejection go on. Think of the loneliness of Christ. He had been part of an eternal circle of love which had never been broken. And now he's stepped away. He's still in the circle, but he's a long ways from the circle. They're they're sending emails back and forth instead of face to face. And he comes to humanity seeking love, and we reject him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows acquainted with grief, and we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised. We did not esteem him. We didn't see anything in him we wanted. There was no desire. We all, like sheep, have gone astray and turned everyone to his own way. He was oppressed. He was afflicted. He opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter, and the sheep before its shearers is silent. He opened not his mouth. But his eyes were always saying that unspoken request, can we be friends? Do you love me? You know, typically the preacher tells people how much they need God. But today I want to flip that around. Does God need us? And I believe if he's infinite love, he needs our love infinitely more then we need his. My wife and I never had children, so I never experienced my children leaving home. So I have to borrow an illustration, and I borrow it from my cousin Lee. When Lee was 19, he and a friend rented an apartment 500 miles away, and they got jobs, and they were going to have independence. And so Lee got in his Corvair van. (laughs) That'll take you back. And... uh, said to his parents, say goodbye to your independent son. And off he went to be independent. And of course, we all discovered independence wasn't all it was cracked up to be, right? And a couple weeks later, he got an envelope in the mail and he could tell by the return address it was from his mom. And here's the letter. His mom wrote, how do you write to your firstborn son who is on his first real solo flight? Well, you put it off because somehow he seems older than you are. 
it's past the time for maternal advice because he already knows almost everything about what you think pertaining to him. But he doesn't know the pain around his mother's heart as she watched him leave to become a man. Your mom wishes she could be there to pick you up if you fall and to encourage you to try again like she did when you were learning to walk. She wishes she could be there to tell you that you are missed. I miss seeing the awful mess all over the basement. Daddy put it in order today, and now it looks cold and unfriendly in a sterile sort of way. I guess I didn't prepare myself for your leaving like I should have. I just wouldn't think about it. Maybe you can't really think about it until it happens. I am grateful to God for giving you to me as a son. And that you put up with us these 19 years. I hope you won't quit. I wanted to write something really poetic or heavy, but the words just wouldn't come. This is not intended to make you homesick or to get you to come home. It's really just therapy for your mother. I want you to know I love you more than saying I love you as you go out the door. I miss you, but I'm glad for your opportunity to grow and mature. And I appreciate the friend you were to me. I'm not sure I'm going to mail this letter. Clearly she did. But it has been good for me to write my feelings and to even shed a few tears. Keep in touch, Lee. We need it more than you do. There's the sentence. Keep in touch, Lee. We need it more than you do. The parent watches the child go away, entering into freedom and life. The parent wants to keep in touch, and all we think is that they're trying to keep a handle on us. And that's the point where they actually need our loving more than we need their loving. I didn't get that when I left home. I never wrote and I called every six weeks. And I realize now that my father, who wrote to his mother two to three times a week, longhand, and she back all the rest of his life after he left home, thought his son didn't care about him. I realize that now. I didn't realize it then. I didn't realize that he needed my love more than I needed his right then. Does God need our love? Maybe sometimes feel his need more than we feel our need for his love. By Jesus' death on Calvary, I believe he was saying, I would rather risk my own eternity for the hope of having you with me than to secure my own eternity knowing it'll be without you. God sent Jesus. Jesus is God. Come to build a bridge to restore relationship. Jesus isn't God come to search out and destroy sinners. Jesus didn't come to try to get us to just be good. He came seeking relationship. He built a bridge. Three spikes, a hammer and some wood, but he built a bridge. And he comes out on that bridge and he's waiting. Do you love me? Can we be friends? How can we say no to someone who has gone to such incredible lengths to show how deeply he wants to be our friend? God knows what it's like for his beloved to break up with him. And you who once were alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, Yet now he has reconciled. Who, who did the reconciling? He's the one out seeking. 
in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and blameless and above reproach in his sight. And we read that and we say, yeah, he wants me to straighten up my act and be good enough so he'll accept me back. No, he comes looking for us because he sees potential. He sees potential in us. In fact, I believe Romans 8 makes it clear that the entire universe is sitting on the edge of their seats just waiting, anticipating what we're going to be when God makes us complete. The universe is excited about your potential. And you may look in the mirror and say, I'm worthless, I've got no talents, I can't do anything, I'm a dud. God says, no, 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 no. I want to make you holy, complete, blameless, pure, above reproach. If indeed you continue in faith, grounded and steadfast, not moved away from the hope of the gospel which you heard, which was preached to every creature under heaven, of which I, Paul, am a minister. God is excited about us and he wants a relationship with us so that we can become all that he knows we have the potential of being forever. Now all things are of God who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ. Notice against he, he does the reconciling. He doesn't stand back and say, well, you know, I'm willing if they'll just come and try. He comes all the way short of, just short of invading our space. And now he gives us the ministry of reconciliation. That is that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. Do you love me? Can we be friends? Not imputing their trespasses to them. Get that point. He doesn't come with a list of all the things you've done that are wrong that are between you and him. In fact, he says, I nailed all that stuff to the tree 2,000 years ago. God comes along and says, there's absolutely nothing between us but your attitude. I don't have anything against you. I don't come imputing trespasses. And he's committed to us now that same word of reconciliation. We can go to others and say, do you know what? There's nothing between you and God. Oh yeah, you're a great sinner. So am I. All those sins sins were handled 2,000 years ago. They were nailed to the cross. The only thing between us and God is Satan telling us there's something there and he's a liar. And when we become reconciled, we become ministers of reconciliation. Now then we're ambassadors for Christ as through God we're pleading through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf. Stop sinning. Is that what it says? We implore you on Christ's behalf. You know, get over here so you don't end up in hell. No, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. Be restored in relationship. Please notice the terminology is relational, not behavioral. God is all about relationship. No longer do I call you servants, he says, but I call you friends. A servant doesn't know what the master is doing, but I call you friends, for I've told you everything. Can we be friends? While on earth, Jesus longed for human companionship, and he still does. In Jesus, we see the heart of the Father, the desire for love, for friends. No matter who you are, where you've been, what you've done, and how long you've been doing it, Jesus comes and says, can we be friends? That's what I'm looking for. And by the way, that friendship will solve everything. You know, most married couples I've met in my life have admitted that marriage has not been everything they dreamed. 
Even the good marriages, not quite everything that they had dreamed. Somehow you, it's, it's, a, it's a sweet taste, but there's a longing for more. You know, we men, we just don't get it. We serve, provide, fix, buy, do, even cook and clean. And then the wife says, but I want more. And we say, what more do you want? And she says, I want you. And we say, we don't know how to do that. I think you women are much better at loving us than we men are at loving you. And yet when I talk to the guys, I hear the same thing in different words. There's things in the guy's heart that they wish she would understand that could be closer. God looks at us, the church. We're his bride. How's God doing at loving us? How are we doing at loving him back? That's the question I want to leave you with tonight. We need God's love. But how are we doing at loving him back? I want that to be the focus of my daily time with Jesus. Not just spending time trying to get something out of Scripture, trying to get something for the day, but do I sit down to give God some loving? What is the great commandment? The lawyer asked, what's the great commandment? Jesus said, love God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. Everything in Scripture hangs on that. Isn't that what it says? So what is the number one commandment? Love God back. What's the immediate byproduct? You'll do a whole lot better at loving each other. And if you're loving God with all your heart and you're loving others as yourself, you're in sync with every law of the universe. You see, love solves behavior, but behavior does not necessarily bring the love. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, done many wonders in your name? And I will declare, I never knew you. I don't think we've gotten acquainted, God says. You've been doing a lot of stuff, but we haven't gotten acquainted. It's not about doing stuff, it's about getting acquainted. And this is eternal life, that they may what? No, that's a relational word, not a behavioral word. They may know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ, whom he has sent. It's all about coming back into knowing, into relationship. We are God's spouse. And that word, know there, is used for Adam knew Eve and she conceived. And that wasn't a concept, that was a very intimate event. God says, I want to know. God is not primarily desirous that we behave, obey, and be good. He primarily desires that we come back into romance of love with him. I love this verse. It says that the church at Antioch, there were certain prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, Lucius, Manaean, and Saul. So you have five men there. Look at that second verse. And as they ministered to the Lord. Have you ever thought about that phrase? We get together so the Lord will minister to us. This says as they minister. How do you minister to the Lord? And fasted. The Holy Spirit said separate these two for me. I'm fascinated by that phrase. What does it mean to minister to the Lord? What does it mean to truly love him back? 
You know, some people say, well, I came to church and didn't get a thing out of it. What if you didn't get a thing out of church, but God got some loving? I mean, what if we show up here tomorrow, not for what we're going to get out of it, but for what we can minister to the Lord? I think we'd have an entirely new experience, and we get all the loving we could stand. We wouldn't come away empty, we'd come away full. Jesus says, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I'll come in and we'll have a meal together. Why in the world do you go out to eat on a date? Is it primarily because you're hungry? No, it's a good place for conversation. I love to do lunch. Somebody wants to meet, I say, let's do lunch. But over a meal, you don't have that, well, there's nothing else going on face-to-face. You, you're eating and you're talking and you're building relationship. It's a comfortable way. And Jesus says, you know, I'll come in and straighten out all your bad habits. Is that what he says? No, we're going to have a relational meal together. We're going to fire up the romance. It's not so much about being good as it is about being in love. Jesus knocks at the door. He wants relationship. He's seeking reconciliation. He's done everything he can short of knocking us down to bring us back into relationship. And he simply says, do you love me? Can we be friends? I need it more than you do. So I want to give you a challenge this week. We have 12 more sessions together. I would like to ask you to commit to be at every meeting for Jesus' sake. Let's come and love him. Let's bask in his wonder, his love, his reconciling power. Let's come and love God back, and I believe we'll find greater revival than we ever will find if we seek revival, if we simply seek him. Now, I want to give you a warning. Satan hates it when we talk relationship with God. And he will oppose. You'll have roadblocks and flat tires and cranky kids and unexpected work demands. And I would just want to encourage you. Decide you're going to be here no matter what if you have to walk uphill through the snow three miles. It will be worth it. Just to give you a sense of what's ahead, tomorrow morning at 1030 It's about who you know. We're going to talk about the basis of relationship with Jesus. At 1145, we're going to talk about being converted. What does it mean to be born again? How do we get into that relationship? Then we're going to have lunch. Praise the Lord. And then at 2.30, we're going to talk about can you really know you're saved? A lot of us have spent a lot of our lives hoping to be ready someday when Jesus comes. Can we know we have eternal life? Can we live in that assurance? Now, that, those four presentations will lay the foundation for everything for the rest of the week. Then Sunday, Monday, and Tuesday nights, we're going to have what I call nuts and bolts topics, simply how to cultivate a relationship with Jesus. And it's so simple, yet it's so hard. It's the biggest battle of life, is that daily time with him and keeping it meaningful and alive and regular. 
And then on Wednesday night, we're going to talk about, okay, how does all this apply to obedience and sanctification? That's going to be probably the heaviest theological night. That's kind of the peak of the mountain. And then the last presentations on Thursday, Friday, and three on Sabbath. We'll be surveying some important topics from the peak of that relational mountain and see what we can see from a new standpoint in terms of our relationship with Jesus and various topics, okay? So that lays out the week. And I want to thank you for being here tonight. And I hope to see you tomorrow morning at 1030. Let's pray. Jesus, we have been challenged tonight not to receive you, but to love you back. I believe everyone in this room has probably given their heart to you. Or we probably wouldn't be here. But we get so absorbed in what we're going to get from you that I think we forget that love is mutual. Would you this week tune us in, not just on how to have more of you, but how to give our love to you, how to keep that first great commandment to love you back with all our heart and soul and mind. Lead us through a revival of intimacy with you that will result in transformed lives in every way. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.